0: Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson,
1: and I'm Livius Nedden. Um, I know I said that the next thing you'd be hearing is our weird holiday beach episode. Um, <laughs> that uh, some things have occurred since that, um, and one of those things is uh, the episode that you are listening to right now. In just a moment, we're going to be bringing on David Duchovny, whose book Miss Subways we reviewed just a couple of months ago, and uh, we're, we're going to have we're going to have some questions for David Duchovny.
0: Yeah, I've got like a million things I'd like to say about talking to David Duchovny, but I'm pretty sure that you just want to get right to it. So uh, without further ado, here is our conversation with David Duchovny. David, thanks for reaching out to us. It's it's great to have you on.
2: It's my pleasure, and, and uh, I was happy to to discover your your, uh, your podcast uh, just, just by accident, I have to say. I'm not a big podcast guy, so I just stumbled on it and I listened to it, and I was like, these guys sound like they're pretty fair and open-minded. <laughs>
0: I can't tell you how relieved I am that you said that. Um
2: <laughs> so uh
0: I think and even in the interview that or the review uh episode we we kind of touched on the fact that obviously we didn't really uh know you as much from uh writing as as other things but um in a, in an interview that I saw or heard yeah. uh you talked about how your father uh published his novel uh when he was uh-huh. in his early 70s so yeah. I, I, it kind of struck me as, as like we know that you have an education in literature and cut right. to a while later, your your first novel comes out. So have you always right. kind of been a writer or is that something that you feel like I finally became a writer now that these books are out?
2: Well, uh, let me just say that the, my favorite part of your podcast when I listened to it was where you played some of the music <laughs> and uh, you were very skeptically cued it up. And then you were like, yeah, hey, that's not. It's not terrible. I might listen to that someday. (laughs) That was my favorite part. Uh, But uh, I I think that uh, I I would have always identified myself as a writer, I think, from, from a young age, probably because my father identified himself as a writer, even though he hadn't published a novel until uh, 72, he had, he did write a play that was on Broadway in 1967 called the trial of Lee Harvey Oswald. And it was too, it was the, it was the cliche too soon. It was four years after the assassination and people weren't ready to see a play about the trial of a man who, you know, Oswald who had been killed uh, and held responsible for it. And, uh, that was a, a huge disaster. And, uh, he he wrote he wrote like little political satire books like The Wisdom of Spiriti Agnew. He would he would collate quotes very much that were in opposition to one another and expose these establishment figures as fools. Like he had a book called the Establishment Dictionary, which was fake um, fake definitions of of words in the establishment. Like an Agnew to Agnew, you know, he'd make something up using phony latin derivations and things like that so he 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 wrote a lot of little stuff but he never wrote a sustained work of fiction and and i didn't think he ever would and then at the age of 72 which was three years before he died he he did publish a, a novel called coney that was very well reviewed and well reviewed in the new york times so it was kind of a wonderful a wonderful example of uh of either persistence or delusion on his part, you know. And, and it was just a great example to me as a, as a person, as a son, that that he would have actually been telling the truth all this year, that he was actually a writer. Um, so, yeah, I would have always identified myself as going into my father's business in a way. Um, I didn't know what else I was going to do with my life. So... I thought, well, I, I should I should know how to write. My father's father was a was a, a newspaper man. He worked for the, the Yiddish newspaper in New York called the Daily Forward. It was it was the oldest and the the only Yiddish language newspaper in, in America. It's no longer. But um he he was, I think, a theater reporter in that and a, and like a jack of all trades reporter. So his father had been a writer of sorts and And I think as immigrants, as as Jewish immigrants, uh, the word is very important. You know, the the ability to write is extremely important uh, if you're not allowed to own land, if you're not allowed to own possessions and things like that. You know, these are people of the book. And uh, so it comes from that side, also from my mother's side. She's Scottish, also no money, peasantry, uh, education. Extremely important education being the way out of their way of life. So from both sides. I got uh, That being in school was very important and that education was of Supreme importance and that writing Was the true mark of a thinking individual Indeed um, done? your books. Done. I think I think I was it we should probably I should yeah
0: Wait, so I want to know the uh, the establishment thing you're talking about, your father was doing the definitions and stuff. Is yep. that something that's available commercially?
2: Uh, it might be. I have a copy of it. It's the the books that he wrote. It, the the publisher was named Ballantine. Don't ask me why. I remember Ballantine books. Uh, the establishment dictionary is one book. The the wisdom of Spirou Agnew is another book. On with the wind: a biography of Martha Mitchell, who was the. Uh, um, district, uh, the, the United States District At- 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 Attorney General uh, wife, remember? Uh, uh, Martha Mitchell during the Nixon administration. I guess she was known for spouting off, so he collected a bunch of her quotes. Uh, he also wrote a book called The Psychiatrist's Coloring Book which and the Nikita Khrushchev Coloring Book, which probably sound funnier than they actually were. <laughs> and um, he also wrote a a uh, he wrote a biography of David Ben Gurion. He sounds like a really interesting cat. Now that I'm talking about
0: him, <laughs> I was going to say this sounds like super witty and, and like cheeky fun.
2: Yeah, he was maybe a little ahead of his time. Uh, I, he would have loved, uh, well, loved and hated uh, Trump. You know, like now, now it's everybody's game to, to to go after Trump in in these ways. But I I, I think he was a he was a satirist at heart he was a parodist and a a satirist and um he had a good sense of humor
1: wow yeah it struck me while you were saying that that he was ahead of his time and probably would have done very well in today's um political climate um with that type of writing um you mentioned satire so we've read we subsequently since we've set up this interview were able to read um holy cow and bucky fucking dent so we are all caught up on the david de library and it struck us that "Holy Cow" was was um, satire and, and funny. Um, mm-hmm. Bucky fucking Dent um, to me felt a lot more like a literary um, piece. And then Miss Subway's was kind of a great marriage. I think that it was part funny, but it was also part mysticism and part literary. Who, right. if you were to describe yourself, and and I know how labels suck, but if you were yeah. trying very quickly to explain to somebody like who your contemporaries are. In, in literature where where would you classify yourself as a writer
2: well labels are good in the kitchen because it's good to know where the silverware is <laughs> and it's good to know where the microwave is so i think it, those are good but uh where would i put myself um i i'm probably a, i think i'm also a sentimental writer i think i'm a nostalgic writer i think i think uh, partly because of my education. I'm probably a literary writer. I can't escape the fact that I know or that I've been exposed to, you know, the best writings that humankind has has offered up and that uh, I can't forget it. You know, so I'm kind of enthralled to it and and I have to join in the conversation. So when I'm writing, I, I guess I'm very aware of who I'm writing with and, and, you know, the quotes that are rattling around in my mind and the books that are rattling around in my mind. And, um, you know, I'm engaged in that dialogue with, uh, I guess, with the canon, is, is what they, they used to call it, uh, or I want to engage with it. I mean, it's very important to me, starting with, with the Bible, you know, and then, and then and, and with the Greeks, with the Bible and with Western uh, literature. So, you know, but also, I also think I'm, I'm probably, you know, I, I lean, I, I seek out what's funny. I, I tend to, you know, even in my work as an actor, I tend to try to find, you know, the funny bone of the character, wherever that is. You know, and I've I've never really played a character without one. Um, and that may be a fault of mine, but it, to me, it, it's a real... Um, it's a baseline for finding a character is what that character thinks is funny because I, I feel like people are really most themselves at at those points when you see what they're laughing at or you see what kind of jokes they tell. But that's kind of off the subject of what you asked, but maybe not. I don't know.
0: <laughs> no, I think it fits into it pretty well. Um, Olivia, when we were reviewing Miss Subway's, talked about how um, and it was we we had a little dance around how to describe it because I said it was your your, right. your book was easy to read and he and he he corrected me to saying approachable but I think that like that thing that you're talking about finding the the funny bone of the characters and stuff and just like I don't want to say vulnerability but kind of exposing like the humanity of of, of a character as long as they're human mm-hmm. I guess because there are cows right. um, I <laughs> think makes your writing very approachable it makes it so that it's like um, you know, we're we're kind of getting on the same level. It's easy to understand and stuff like that. So um, I don't know if that's what you meant by that, but that, you you know, I just thought about that as you were saying that is like, I think a lot of the approachability of your book is the fact that you're almost kind of like winking at the reader in, in, in spots mm-hmm. as, you're, as you're writing the story. Uh,
2: which story? All, all, of, them all or, of them or the uh, holy cow? Um, well, maybe less yeah, fucking I, I dead mean,
0: because that seemed a little more serious, yeah. but there's still that comedy in there. There's humor threaded throughout the whole thing.
2: Oh well, yeah. To me, Bucky Dent is uh, is uh, funny a, a lot of places. Um, to me, to, to me, I, I laugh. Uh, I think I probably laugh the most if I was to read uh, Bucky Dent of the things that I've done. But um, oh, those are the parrots of Malibu. You know, there are parrots in Malibu, wild parrots in there. That's not. I'm not making that noise. If you hear <laughs> it, those, those are birds. Do you
0: hear it? I—I'll tell you what. I lived the last summer I spent in um, Santa Clara Valley, and yeah, parrots. There, I was plagued by these like wild parrots. <laughs> there was like little flocks of them. These little green parrots, right?
2: Yeah, they're really loud. Yeah, I love
0: them. They don't have a good sound.
2: No, they don't. But I just love that they exist. <laughs> they
0: yeah, shouldn't. it's it's charming. But yeah, I, I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. <laughs>
2: Um. So. Uh, yeah. The. Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I probably just—it's probably a fault. I can't help but look for the funny of of things or situations, and it, it's maybe it's a defense mechanism. Maybe it's a way that I'm not going as deeply as I I could go. But I I, I also believe that the 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 funniest people that I've known in my life are actually the deepest people. So I'm, I guess I'm torn. I guess I'm torn with with thinking with feeling like, oh, my instinct is to go funny here. Maybe I shouldn't follow that instinct because maybe I'm trying to cover something up. So I, I kind of have that battle as a, as an actor, as a writer, as a, as a anything, as a person.
0: I, I can feel that. I've always kind of had that feeling that, like, I guess if you want to talk about acting or whatever, like the people who, yeah. or in general, the people that can do comedy, which I think is, is incredibly difficult, they can kind of, yeah. they can access, like, the entire spectrum of, of emotions as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I do think, you know, if you can get somebody laughing, you know, and crying at the same time, to me, that's the height of like art. You know, like like you're you're having them experience like the both the North and South Pole of what it is to be human in one moment. It's like, yes. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever done it, but that that would be. <laughs> Like, you know, when you're laughing and you feel yourself about to cry.
0: I had, I had a little tearful moment in Bucky fucking Dent, for sure.
2: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I, we're going to try to make that as a movie one of these days. Oh, We've been yeah. trying for a while, and uh, I do think it's a natural kind of a movie. Um, it, it, it kind of lives in a very cliched, you know, father-son baseball area, and yet I think if if it's done correctly, it's, it's not going to be cliched.
1: So since you mentioned it, baseball was almost like a third central character in Bucky Dent. Um, yeah. What's your relationship to baseball? Was that all kind of genuine? Did you grow up on baseball and have that type of relationship to the game? It feels to me like when someone's a baseball fan, you're going to get a lot more passion than your average football fan or basketball fan, or maybe soccer fan, if that's such it's a thing exists.
2: It's odd that way. Yeah. Uh, um... Uh, my my relationship to baseball is, uh, well, I guess we dated when I was a kid. We dated pretty heavily when I was a kid. And uh, then she broke up with me uh, right around college. She didn't want me to play anymore. So uh, I think I've, I've always loved the game. Um, I was a fan. I mean, not, not like a crazy fan. I find wearing... Uh, the jersey of, a, of an, a grown man wearing the jersey of another man, I find it uh, incomprehensible, that idea. So, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I'm a fan, uh, and when I was a kid, I was a fan. But there is something about baseball that just translates to literature in a way that it seems that other sports, uh, don't maybe it's it's just so slow or eh, who knows who knows what it is but the best the best sports writing seems to be about baseball and maybe boxing but but baseball and and uh, I I always like to say that you don't really have to know anything about baseball to enjoy Bucky Dan and I- and I guess I believe that's true although I don't know what it would be like to not know anything about baseball so I guess I'm just <laughs> making that up.
1: I, I No, I think you're right. Neither Rob nor I are, are sports fans really at all. Right. And, and I think we both have a basic understanding of how the games work and stuff. Right. And I think it played very well.
0: This is kind of more of a personal. I, in the podcast, I typically share personal stories that maybe have something to do with what we're talking about. And right. often not, but I find them entertaining. So um, I'm going to tell you. Uh, so like baseball, I've never really followed. However, um, like I'll tell you how I got into reading um, mm. as, as a kid. When um uh when I was in like um uh, elementary school the the library that was in the town I grew up in um had this thing where if for kids reading in the summertime if the kids read a certain number of books they would get free tickets to a Cubs game um and and that was like right. all right of course we're gonna read books we read books anyway and so me and my brother read so many books and got so many free Cubs tickets that like they had to kind of cut us off right um and so we went to a bunch we went to a bunch of you know uh cubs games and ah, god damn it worked because i never really cared about baseball but like that's i think how i became such a big reader so
2: wow <laughs> that's kind of a cool story
0: kind of weird like it it worked like they actually yes. got me reading because of that but and i never you know yeah. they thought i was going to become a baseball fan and became a reader
2: so. <laughs> Well, they lost you. Yeah, <laughs> you never been, never been back to a game since.
0: Cubs lost me, and all right. So I'll do a postscript to this. I was living um, about five blocks away from Wrigley Field up until like a year before oh. um, the yeah. Cubs, you know, uh, went all the way. Yeah. And I was watching like all the fanfare and everything, um, you know, on the you know when they won the World Series. And I was the only thought I had was I'm so glad I don't live down there because it was just chaos. It was
2: <laughs> so a true fan.
0: True. You know, it's funny when I go Cubs.
2: When, when I when I was uh, when I submitted Bucky to my editor, um, he's not a baseball guy at all. He's a great editor, but he said to me, "Ah, oh, you know, it's just, you know, I feel like could we set it in the present day? Is there any way to like could we make it about the Cubs?" And I was like, oh. You mean make it like fucking Bartman or something? Something fucking Bartman? Or, you know, that kid who caught the, <laughs> who interfered, who interfered with the Like, no, I can't do that. No, no, it's got to be Bucky. It's got to be 1978, and it's got to be Bucky fucking Dent.
1: <laughs> That's great. There's a very touching um, tribute towards the end of Bucky Dent, um, which I, I don't want to get too far into in the event that I don't want to spoil this for anybody, but. Um, yeah, I my, my tears may have may have welled up a little bit um, in reading that, uh, but then there was kind of a sadness there. So I felt like Marty, um, who who the tribute is being made to, without saying too much, um, mm-hmm. like that's what everybody identified him with though was just baseball. And and I don't like I've known people like that in my life. Like that's just that's the guy who's the Bears fan or that's the guy who's the Cubs fan. Mm-hmm. So there was inherent sadness in that, even though it was kind of like a celebration of his life. Yeah. was that I don't know was that intentional I guess is what I'm trying to say that 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 kind of mix of there's a tribute to this guy but sadly the tribute is to his his um fandom to to a baseball yeah. team
2: I guess to me it was the fact that it was a lie was was the tribute you know the fact that that mm-hmm. that the celebration was as if the Red Sox had won you know and and not that the Yankees had beaten them yet again, and and the the love, the love that was being expressed was, you know, in the face of the hard truth of of reality and death, love was going to create a fiction that was going to carry the day, and and if and if the book is about anything else besides, you know, that life belongs to the losers or whatever you might pull from the book. It's really about that love Love is often in service of telling a story a certain way that is not factual but is a comfort and uh, more true somehow spiritually to, to the ones who are involved in it than the cold, hard facts of winning or losing.
0: And I'll have to say that... Um, uh, with Bucky Dent, I know we're we're talking a lot about Bucky Dent, and we have questions about the other books. Um, That's okay. With uh, with the Bucky fucking Dent book, um, in the beginning I was thinking, okay, this is a strained father-son relationship, and I don't know why I didn't see it coming, but when we started to see the links that, you know, um, first off, you know, Ted, but then, like, basically everybody would go to, to, you know, help out Marty feeling better about what he cared about, like, right. that was it caught me off guard but it was like i I just get it i get it and then the rest of the book i was just watching it pile on and pile on so i think it was i think that emotional impact once i got where it was going was just was great
2: right right thank you (laughs) i think
0: if i i'm gonna jump over to miss subways a little bit um Mm -hmm. and it's basically we did extensive online research about you before this uh, interview and by that i mean we went to wikipedia um <laughs> that's our standard joke uh <laughs> that's good <laughs> Your uh the doctoral thesis uh if, yeah. if this is correct is magic and technology and contemporary fiction and poetry is that right
2: oh boy yeah
0: so yeah um but anyway like the first thing i thought of was um that probably applied a lot in the Miss Subways book because there's definitely like that supernatural element, but also like kind of a time phone. So is there, was, was, was yeah. this something that was in uh, Miss Subways was inspired based on some of the research or, or, or writing that you did for that?
2: Um, yeah, possibly, uh, although I didn't actually ever write it. So I, I didn't, I just, I just came up with the idea before I sat my orals <laughs> and then that was, as far as i got i might have started writing an introductory chapter and then i got sidetracked and now i'm 58 so it's not going to happen but um i think that i think i was always uh, interested in this idea now the, the the idea behind the thesis was this it was i was going to talk about certain authors and they were Norman Mailer, James Merrill, Robertson Davies, Thomas Pynchon, and um, Ishmael Reed. And I was going to talk about how these authors of the 20th century (coughs) were confronting uh, these exponential gains in technology, and that technology is is a certain kind of magic, I guess scientific magic and, and in in centuries gone by you know you had a magician who did these things that technology now does I mean we're all mm-hmm. fucking magicians now compared to you know somebody in the 16th century we we rule you know it's like back to the future we go back we invent rock and roll we do I got a toaster <laughs> I could be king of France just with a fucking toaster I guarantee you, you send me back there with a toaster and I'll do it so my thesis was kind of about how in um, you know and in dealing with Oppenheimer <clears throat> you know and, the, and nuclear weaponry, and the idea that there has never been a technology that hasn't been deployed. That's the cold, hard fact of technology. It's like if if we figure out how to do it, it just seems human nature that we are going to do it. We figured out how to make an a bomb. we detonated it. We figured out how to make H-bombs, we detonated them. I imagine any any bomb that we figure out how to do, we're going to detonate it. Whether or not we use it against people or atolls is another question. But, therefore, there was a certain kind of lack of morality that was being brought to bear on the use of technology. Whereas magic was pretty much uh, bifurcated into good magic and bad magic. There was bad magic. There was magic that you shouldn't be practicing, there was Dr. Faustus, there was a whole tradition of good magic and bad magic. Mm. But why is there not good technology and bad technology? And and Mm. what I was saying was that these writers are trying to infuse a moral field of magic onto technology in order to moralize it, in order to make it a question to say, should we do that? I know we can, but should we? And that that's kind of what my thesis was going to be about. Now, when, uh, when Miss Subways comes along, I think it's just something I've always been interested in. I like the idea of gods as being technology superior beings or mm. magically superior beings. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> humans kind of caught in the middle. Uh, so that's, I, I, I don't, again, I don't know if I answered <laughs> the question, but... I, I think you know. I talked around what I'm interested in. You you,
0: you tend yeah. to be answering our questions way above I think where we're asking them. So I think you're, you've been you're good. Did I stop doing that? No, no. It's it's way better than oh. I ever hoped for. So okay, yeah. keep going.
2: All right. <laughs> okay, well that's where that came from. And uh, I never did write the thesis, but I think you know even if you go back to like stuff that I wrote for X Files, which kind of perfectly lines up in that area. One well, of the parasites. After you, now. <laughs> um, you know, X Files is kind of be a, a perfect uh, a canvas for somebody with, with my kind of interests uh, to to work at. You know, because there's a lot of you know what's the morality of this science happening in that show.
1: So we've touched on um, a little bit, I think, of kind of the maybe origins of Miss Subways and a little bit about Bucky Dent. Holy cow! Where did you come up with that? See the other the other ones like I've got like like you know like a good right. feel on, on where you where you came up with the idea yeah. and how you developed it. Um, for anybody who does not know, um, Holy Cow is about a small group of animals who can communicate with one another that find out what really happens to animals and decide to uh to, to make a change uh, for the better for themselves. How yeah. how did this how did this come to be?
2: Very very simple. And I remember it very clearly, and it was a while ago. It was when I lived in L.A. And I, you spent a lot of time in your car. Uh, and um, you know, I find that driving is a is a very can be a very creative act. The more creative it is, the worse driver you are, unfortunately. So you know, I I would have, you know, this kind of a kind of a spacing out that happens when you're driving, you know, paying attention but not. Uh, it's almost like swimming laps or running, and these are kind of good. These are good states of mind for me, anyway, personally, to be in, in, in order for stuff to bubble up, just like ideas to bubble up. And so, driving, I, I've often, I've always enjoyed driving in L.A. For that reason, is that I often have thoughts that I, that seem to come out of nowhere that are interesting to me. Um, not often enough, but sometimes. And I was driving on Pacific Coast Highway, and I just, it just, it just fully formed into my head the thought, it was almost as if it was written on a cute, on an index card. It said, you know, I I think it started, you know. (laughs) It's like, you know, if I was a cow, I would probably try to get to India. And that's where the whole thing, that's where the whole thing came from. It was just like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and uh, I wonder what the story there is, you know, and uh, you know, and then and then I just started to like tease the idea more. I was like, okay, well, what other animals might seek safe haven? <laughs> okay, well, a pig, if he could get to Israel because of the kosher laws, he'd be safe. Okay, so we got a pig wants to go to Israel, and then the turkey. Oh, well, he maybe he thinks that country's named after him, so that he'd be a god if he goes there. So now, okay, now I got my three heroes, and I was like, oh, now I'm excited. I gotta. I got three characters. Like you know, I can maybe make a story about this. And when I was thinking about writing the first novel, I had I had the idea for Bucky. I even had the idea for Miss Subways back then in 2015. These were ideas that I would toyed around with for for years as screenplays or as just ideas that were in a drawer. And I was I knew I would write them up at some point. And it came time, I had time, I'd finished Californication, I I had some time off. I was like, okay, I'm going to write that first novel. I think I chose Holy Cow because it, it was kind of like it took the pressure off of it, you know, announcing myself as a writer of, like, serious adult fiction. I thought, okay, this is kind of perched somewhere in between for kids, for adults. It's kind of like you don't know what it is. You know, I, I didn't know what it was, and in fact, it was difficult for me to sell it as an idea because publishers would say, "Well, is it for kids? Is it for adults?" And I'd say, "Yep." <laughs> and uh, they don't—they don't like that. I mean, I'm not bad mouthing them. Everybody needs to know how to market something. It's very difficult to market a uh, a book that is not for adults or for children. I had a similar experience when I made uh, the movie House of D which was it's a, it, a coming-of-age story for adults starring a kid. And that's a very difficult movie to sell because mm. I didn't know that. I just was making a movie. But I didn't know it's hard to get adults to go see a movie about kids, and it's hard to get kids to go see a movie that's really for adults. So I kind of had the same experience with Holy Cow in the beginning until I found until Jonathan Galassi at FSG said, you know, I'd like to publish it.
1: Yeah, we was on our radar when it came out, and and yeah, marketing, right? So we kind of passed on it. But I've got to yeah, tell you, like you a I, cow.
2: that sounds stupid. I don't want to read a story about a cow. Like yeah. A
1: cow. Yeah. I, I, I was you know, down it, for the cow. I want to tell
0: you, I was down we, for the cow.
1: We always, we always record this podcast, um, in a way that we, we just, I don't know, like the only right way to do it is that the writer will never hear it. Yeah. Um, but then sometimes <laughs> you have to kind of face the music and know that someone heard it. Um, here's what I'll say about that. Although I enjoyed all three books, I enjoyed them very differently and holy cow, I honestly don't remember the last time where I, I read a book with like a pretty much like a half smile on my face all the way through. So even if it was what might be considered... It
2: sounds like a grimace, though. (laughs) Yeah, especially if you've
1: seen
0: Livius. Good Lord. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: (laughs) Rob knows me. It takes a lot for me to get a genuine full smile. But no, I mean, like, it was just a really, like, good feel book to read. Um, So maybe that's a prejudice that I have, and I have to open up my my world to books that may appear sillier. Because, like I said, I I enjoyed all three of them differently. But if I really sat down and said, which one did I have the most fun reading? It's Holy Cow so there well, you go That's, I,
2: well well i mean I, I i'm not going to say that it's in the league of these kinds of books but you know obviously animal farm is is in that tradition or or even charlotte's web which is a beautiful you know beautiful story uh or you know for me going back to like aesop's fables um i grew up with stories about animals so um it was kind of in me just uh from 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 me growing up, I loved Aesop's fables growing up, so I kind of felt comfortable doing that, and I and I felt safe. Um, I felt I felt safe writing satirically in this form, you know, writing through the animals. Um, and like I said, as as a first foray, as a first try at at writing fiction, uh, I, I chose it. Um, I think, you know, not specifically, but maybe unconsciously and smartly to be able to hide in a way behind, oh, this is just a book about a cow, you know, and then, then I was really free to say what I, what I meant.
0: Interestingly, and I don't know if this was intended, but you basically gave voice to the, like the one element in that whole kind of question that you're asking that like never has a voice. So it was, I don't know if you meant to be that deep about it, but yeah, we, we never hear from the animal's point of view on this on this top on these topics i guess
2: well i mean without without getting too preachy and i and i have i have a lot of uh i have a lot of problem with uh with mixing politics and and art and propaganda propaganda in general whether or not it's propaganda i fully believe in or not i i have a distaste for for any kind of uh overt political agenda in 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 any art um but certainly i was i I do believe in the consciousness of of animals on this planet and i and I do believe that we we as a, we as, a as a nation it, it's a great disservice to our spiritual and psychic selves, the way we treat animals and and uh, the way we harvest them on an industrial scale and and uh, you know that was part of I was part of this. Now, I don't believe that a cow has the type of consciousness that the that the cow has in this book, mm-hmm. but i I do believe I do believe they have a an animal consciousness, and I do believe that they feel pain and they feel love and they feel suffering. and I also believe that it's okay to uh, eat them. You know, I think that we have a uh, you know I think we are omnivores as as uh, as humans, but but the way you know it was kind of written as a, you know, very oblique critique of industrial-sized uh, meat farming that we do in this country.
0: Now, that brings up, uh, so I just, I didn't have this question prepared, but you saying that made me think, like, I, I guess, um, a- after the book came out, how, like, how was it received? Did you have to answer really stupid questions about, like, animals can't fly or, or, or things, or did you have to kind of, <laughs> kind of uh, put the the book in perspective for people that didn't understand it
2: well i i didn't want to get into the politics of it because i felt like i was writing an entertaining fable Mm -hmm. in a way um and that the you know if you wanted to get an actual what can be done about this that's a whole different discussion and that's not necessarily the discussion that i'm seeking to have by writing this book I'm. Just, I'm just. I really feel that books, they raise questions. They don't. They don't give And once you start giving answers, I don't think you're. You're really not an artist anymore. Mm. You know. You're some kind of. Some kind of politician. Um, but. Uh, uh, <clears throat> the best. Question I got, was when uh, before the book came out. And. Um, it was getting translated to other languages, and, and I got a query from the German translator who actually wrote a, a bestseller in Germany called He's Back, about uh, about Hitler, coming back to the present day, and it was a big, huge bestseller, you know, a satire, and I was really happy that this guy was going to take the time to translate my book, <clears throat> and um, it was out him or his editor said uh, basically that How could uh, how could Elsie give milk if she hadn't had sex yet? You know, she hadn't she hadn't had cabs. I'm such a I'm such a city boy that I didn't even it never even occurred to me that I'd written this whole thing. So I was like, fuck, and it all fell apart. Oh my god, it all fell apart. (laughs) And so at the end, I don't know if you if you read like the like the Mm -hmm. addendum Mm -hmm. where I I talk about how Elsie you know can't be trusted you know, the stuff she told me and that one of them is, you know, how could she be giving milk if she claims to have been a virgin at that time?
0: So Elsie was outed as an unreliable narrator?
2: Exactly. Wow. I had to I had to throw her under the bus. <laughs> it was either her or me. Well,
0: a friend of ours once said that, you know, the character can be wrong about something. It doesn't mean that the author is. So,
2: I, I, I have taken refuge beneath go. that many a time. I'm, I'm sure I will continue to.
0: It's the way to go.
1: I want to commend you on, um, I just, that was something that bothered me. That whole politics and art thing has bothered me for, for a while. And I I was never able to really put it into words. And recently I read an article, maybe I was listening to a podcast and I remember um, it was just stop ruining art by putting your politics into it. Um, So, so I want to commend you for having that. I think that's a a great, um, a, a great way to go.
2: Well, the politics is in it because you can't, you know, politics isn't art, you know. I mean, you can't do something that's not political, Mm -hmm. really. I mean, the fact that it's not political even is political. Like, okay, here's my apolitical work of art. That's political. (laughs) Um, But if you have an agenda, you know, if you're grinding an axe about a specific issue, uh, or or an or an agenda of specific issues i i couldn't I, I couldn't commend your politics more if I agree with you and i couldn't be more more disappointed or unmoved by your work because it just feels like a lecture Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and um I feel like as a culture we're in a really tough place that way because I feel like you know everything is being it's not even like <clears throat> it used to be it, 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 you critique the author and then the book. It seemed like, you know, the beginnings of c- celebrity culture or whatever, like, okay, it's all about the person, and now it's, like, all about the politics of that person and how how it's being implemented through the artwork. And, and I'm just, I'm an old fogey with this, and I'm just throwing up my hands and going, oh... <laughs> It feel, it's, all, it's all propaganda, you know, even if I agree, it's still propaganda.
0: It's like it's filtered through a cause, like
2: it can't just be what it is. Um, yeah, I mean, it's that. And the cause is great. And maybe the movie's great. Maybe the book is great. Mm. But there's still something that that gets to me as a consumer of these things as a reader as a watcher where you talk about unreliable narrator i feel that's an unreliable artist who's trying to convince me of a political position of some kind
0: i i had a question and it's not going to fit well so <laughs> i don't know if i want to ask it or not <laughs> but um uh we something came up earlier and and, and it, it's in my brain you were talking about like when you were in the car and I'm sorry to yeah. I'm sorry to switch lanes on you here talking about cars. All right. um, All and right. being creative in the car. And um your your um your music, you've got the two albums. You've got um every third thought and then hell or high water. hmm And the Hell or High mm-hmm. Water one just reminded me of one of those car thoughts, and I'm sorry that I'm just subjecting you to my my thoughts and stuff like that. Alright. I was thinking about the Hell or High Water thing recently, and, and maybe you have insight into this. Um I, I, I always looked at this as, like, all right, hell. Like, so this is come hell or high water means, like, obviously the bad things are going to happen, whatever. Right. High water doesn't seem nearly as severe as as hell. Right. And and that was kind of a car car thought I had one time. and so,
2: <laughs> Yes, I'll take high water, please. Yeah. like You can keep a, the hell for yourself. <laughs> if it's a
0: choice between the two, I'm really thinking high it's water. Like, you move inland like a little the old
2: bit. It's the old Eddie Izzard routine with... Uh, like uh, english torturers you remember oh, that the,
0: the cake or death right yeah
2: yeah <laughs> cake please cake
0: please mm-hmm. yeah
2: <laughs> oh, i'm sorry we're out of cake
0: <laughs> yeah we only had three bits and i didn't know there was going to be such a rush
2: <laughs> cake or death
0: obviously i'm not making light of your art but um it just that it, it triggered a thought in my head
2: well i think i think the saying is older you know, I think it's an old saying, and I I think it comes from a time when high water was a was a big deal. You know, you're talking about flood. You know, I think it's really sure. hell or, or you know tsunami type floodings. Right. You know, so it's not just the uh, you know high tide or whatever. Although high <laughs> tide can be tough, but but it's it's uh I just always love, I guess I guess I love the phrase when I when I was writing the song I, I uh, and it struck me as kind of Sadly, funny to write the line. I said I'd love you. Come hell or high water, well, the flood's in. You know. So, to me, that was it was a good it was a it was a good way into a lyric. So, um, that's where that that all comes from.
0: That's great. No, I love it. Yeah. So, while
1: we're on the music, it seems like you've uh, got acting down. You've nailed the literary stuff, and now to be a true Renaissance man, right? We had to move into music. Um, how, like, I don't want to know, like how you came to that decision, I guess, was it a tough decision to make, to, to try your hand at music?
2: That's an interesting question because I would never have done it if I hadn't been pushed, uh, almost every step of the way with the music, because honestly, throughout my life, if, if you would have asked me, what's my greatest fear? It would be um, having to sing alone in public uh, in front of anybody, really. I mean, I just was, I was always, I was in, you know, church school where you sing hymns. And, you know, I was one of the kids who was told to, you know, just lip sync, David, just just move your lips. So so it was never, there's never been a point in my life where somebody goes, you should sing. And, um, so yeah, it would have been, it's so absurd to me that, that I, that not only that I record myself singing, but that I, that I do it live where I'm not protected. So it's, it's a wonderful absurdity in my life. It it just, it's like one of these things that, that I think about and I just go, it's just goes to show that you don't know anything at all about what's going to happen in your life. So um, I started playing guitar like six or seven years ago, something to do with Californication, and then I started going, well, I can get free lessons if I if I have Hank playing guitar. So I started getting free lessons. That's clever. And, yeah, yeah, I'm, and cheap. You know, it, it helps to be half Scottish sometimes. <laughs> you can figure these things out. And um, I started playing guitar. It was really just to uh, amuse myself. And then I started playing, you know, looking up on the internet and, um, you know, anybody can find the music for these songs that I grew up loving and they're rock and roll. So they're pretty simple. And I was, I was just amazed at how, how simple they were, not in the sense of easy, but they were simple. And, um, I was, I was surprised to find that I would put chords together and I would hear melodies that I, maybe I couldn't sing so well, but I could hear him. And if I brought him to a friend of mine who was a really good singer and guitar player, then he could pad out the melodies for me in ways that I heard them in my head but couldn't reproduce them. And then once I heard him do them, then I could kind of copy it. And then I just started singing better that way. And um, then I met this guy, Brad Davidson who said, hey, you know, I really think these songs, you know, I started writing songs, and and he said, I think these songs are legit, and, you know, if you want to work on your voice, if you really want to work on that, then I think you should, you know, we should record some of them. So I was like, okay, I'll I'll do that, but, you know, you use auto-tune, and I will never perform live, so let's just do this, (laughs) and you can just, like, you can just, like, I can sound like Cher on that song, or I can sound, you know, like, like Kanye, just just auto-tune the fuck out of me and make me sound amazing, and then I will be like Steely Dan, and I will never hit the road, and you'll just <laughs> think that I can sing. And um, so that's not how we recorded. Ultimately, we recorded it. I mean, I'm sure I'm tuned a little bit, but I'm not tuned a lot, and I do perform live, and I'm not tuned there, and I hit the wrong notes sometimes, and I, I go flat and I go sharp, but that's rock and roll, and that's live performance, and I'm perfectly okay with that at this point i mean i I always want to sing better i always want to sing like sting you know i always want to be pitch perfect but it ain't ain't ever gonna happen (laughs)
0: um so i guess uh, knowing that you have like you know kind of a, a vast body of work outside of music do you find you get something different out of it than than when you're writing or when you're when you're acting and stuff like does it give you a different charge
2: Definitely, it's it's really collaborative, which I love. Um, from a very selfish point of view, I I get to have really talented people add their talents to me and make me look better than I am. But also, just from a human standpoint, I love I love collaborating. I love playing a game. I love you know team sports. I love I, I that's what one of the things I loved about. I love about acting is, you know, you go to work with a lot of people and you create this thing and everybody's involved and acting itself is very much like a back and forth, uh, a catch or a tennis game or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, so I like that. I like that. And, and, and music and, and, and I found that lyric writing was a way to kind of get back to poetry writing which i which was the first kind of writing that i did like in high school i guess i wrote poems even in college and um it's not the same po- uh, lyrics are not poems mm-hmm. but they're they're more uh, they're closer to to poems than than prose or to screenwriting so i i did and 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 i found it very i find it very interesting uh, fun it's really fulfilling for me to try to write lyrics because i i kind of uh it's totally new because it's not quite poetry, but it's something else.
0: Yeah.
1: The um, and I can't think of his name right now, but the uh, the Airborne Toxic Event, um, the story of the guy oh, that hello. started. Yes, his um his backstory is kind of interesting. He had a lot of bad things happen to him all in the course of like a year, and he started to write what he thought was poetry. And then he showed it to someone and said this isn't poetry this is song lyrics we should get you some musicians yeah. and see if we can make this happen so it's interesting that you say that they're that close but they're really not the same thing
2: no it's very it's a, it's a wonderful i didn't know don De, don delillo has a band
1: yeah, is that no is that the guy's really? name the airborne toxic event
2: oh oh, that's the name of the band
1: yes sorry
2: oh i thought i thought you meant don delillo was writing because no. in one of his uh books there's an airborne toxic event. I
1: don't oh no! Know. Yeah, there's a band, and it, it might be oh. might be based on his book. Maybe oh, yeah, I don't it probably know.
2: Probably is. Yeah, yeah it probably is. But um, yeah, it's really it's a magical kind of uh, relationship between the words and the music because uh, you know I think we've all had that experience of reading lyrics on a page and being underwhelmed, and then you hear it embedded in the song, and you're like, oh my god, that is so perfect and moving and what happened what happened what happened (laughs) yeah you know between 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 that and and uh you know lyrics have to give the music room and the music has to give the lyric room and uh it's a real it's a real relationship and and it's that to me that's like the exciting thing about songwriting is is figuring that out you know and and if you're lucky, and or good, and, or both, you you watch it happen, and you feel it when it starts to happen, and that's cool.
0: Oh, that's a perspective I don't really think I had before, but um, it makes a lot of sense now that you say that.
2: Well, I mean, you even look at like, the great lyricists, like Dylan, or Leonard Cohen, or The Beatles, mm-hmm. or Warren Zevon, you know, and, and you, you look, You look at their stuff on the page, and it's kind of flat. You know, it it doesn't stand up to the best poetry, which is why it was weird for me to see Bob Dylan win a Nobel Prize for, I guess it was poetry, (laughs) because I don't think his his words, they don't stand up to the best poems, because they're they're not made to. That wasn't his intent. Mm -hmm. His his words had to exist with the music. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought that was kind of bogus the best lyricist of all time
0: sure i will heartedly agree with that
2: but i don't think i don't think those are the best poems of all time they're the best lyrics of all time Uh, maybe i'm just (laughs) nitpicking i'm not sure (laughs) what i'm saying
0: you're like you get the nobel committee on the phone and be like listen guys
2: (laughs)
1: I have had the opportunity to um, to obviously see my own playlist and some of Rob's playlist, so I can tell you neither one of us has any right to comment <laughs> yeah. on music a- at all. Uh, the one thought and I guess question I had in listening to to both of your albums, it seemed that from the first one from Hell or High Water to Every Third Thought, that two two things struck me. One, and I could be completely wrong here, one that the the newer album Every Third Thought is uh, is a little more upbeat. Um, mm-hmm. than hell or high water and that you sound more like yourself so having watched uh, X-Files in its entirety and Californication its entirety you know I have that, that voice in my head and that you sounded more like yourself in every third thought so it, were there any um, conscious decisions A. to be more upbeat or did something change in your life and B. did someone tell you you didn't sound enough like you on that first album
2: yeah. um, <laughs> good question and I think it has an answer. I hope I can give it to you. <laughs> I, I think Hell or High Water is really a, a divorce album. It's really an end of a relationship album, and most of the songs are about the end of something. Um, so it is. There's a certain there's a certain down to it, you know, written into the the material, uh, written lyrically. Anyway, depending. Doesn't depend on what the tempo is. I mean, just like most of the songs are—I don't want to say dark, but they're, there's there's a lot of pain, and and I think there's a lot of pain in every third thought. But there's there's also some some more hopeful or more new beginning uh, songs in that as well. So uh, in terms of m- my voice, I just think I got more comfortable you know, I, and I, and I, and I get better as a singer. Uh, I mean, I just get, I get more relaxed. I get more, um, more willing to take some chances or to, you know, expand my range a little bit or to, you know, really sing out. So, uh, you know, when I recorded Hell or High Water, I was terrified and, and terribly embarrassed to be singing at all. I, I really thought I had no business to be singing. And I'm sure you have some people that will agree with that so it's like i just you know it was everything i could do to to get through that and to try to try to sing the melodies that i had uh, that i had written in a way that was uh that worked you know but by the time it came to record every third thought i had not only done hell or high water but i'd also toured some and sung live and gone through the experience of having to sing in that moment and, you know, not being corrected and, and not, not being, um, taken care of, uh, <laughs> by a machine. So, uh, you know, having been through all that and, and, to, to survive and not only survive, but kind of feel invigorated and exhilarated by that, uh, connection of just the singing with my own particular voice. Um, that would be, if you're hearing that in every third thought, I mean, that, that's the way I would describe mm-hmm. my experience of, of, uh, of my recording so far. I mean, I, the first day that we recorded Hell or High Water, we were recording a, a song that, that didn't ultimately make it on the album called Stay on the Train. And, um, you know, at some point after about four hours into it, I was actually lying on the floor of the studio just repeating, this is a mistake. This is a huge mistake. This is a mistake, <laughs> and I had to be, like walked around the building and like given a drink and like this is, you can get back in there, you know. And then it it got better from there.
0: It's that's it's fascinating that like um, that you're con- – like and forgive me in advance if I say this in a really poor way, but like that your confidence in a performance. Can be shook, even though, like you know, the the fanboys of the world would be like, "Oh, you're you're fucking Mulder, you can do this," but like it has nothing to do with right. this other medium, yeah. and so like you're kind yeah. of starting fresh in another medium, and so, um, uh, like well,
2: we it's interviewed... not only that. It's not only that. It's like you know, as an actor, you know, I've I've had you know, when you're starting a new role, you have you have days in the beginning. Hopefully, you know, they they get fewer and farther between but you have days where you are just lost Mm. you know and you're like i don't know what the fuck i'm doing (laughs) i'm terrible i'm not here i'm not present i'm not listening i'm not nothing nothing is real i'm full of shit i'm phony i can see the words on the page as my mouth is moving (laughs) i can (laughs) you know all these all these things so it's like you know that's on the other hand, you could say that's what makes it so exciting, in a way. It's like if it, if if I if I was going into everything, going, you know, I'm older, I can do this, or <laughs> I've done this, therefore I can do that. That, you know, it might be soothing in a way, but it's it's not that it's not really human.
0: You don't get that thrill of accomplishment.
2: Oh man, it's great! Like like to 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 go through a day, and I've had many of these days on all different kinds of. Uh, acting jobs a day where i'm completely lost and unsure and um insecure and to keep going and to actually get to a point where you do some decent work oh man those are the best days i i go home and i'm like i'm a hero today i was a hero today i was a fucking hero
0: Oh, trust us. We've interviewed hundreds of authors, and and it was intimidating to talk to you. So I, I feel like we know oh. what that's like a little bit right. at least.
2: I <laughs> had uh, like in, in a nutshell, and and this is not like not like totally on point, but it speaks a little to what to what I'm trying to say is when I, I was shooting um, I was shooting a movie in Montreal, and it's I think it's the one movie I've done that that actually never came out, and it was called. The Secret, and it was really, it was a great idea. It was a remake of a Japanese uh, movie and, a, and, like, a novel, Japanese novel, and it was a cool kind of thriller idea. But anyway, for whatever reason, the movie didn't ultimately work. But, but my movie, House of D, came out uh, maybe the second week we were shooting that, and um, my driver uh, was a Quebecois guy, and he didn't speak much English, but he saw that, my movie had been reviewed in the local paper. Uh, House of D had been reviewed. So he very kindly like opened it up on my seat from when I was getting in to go to work that morning. And I don't think he saw, he didn't see what was written, or else he probably <laughs> wouldn't, he wouldn't have done that. So I get into the car, and, and I, the first line is, um, House of D gets an F. Oh, and I'm no. like, oh I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> and then the first line is, "Has somebody ab- has somebody abducted David Duchovny's brains?"
1: Oh, Jesus! And
2: uh, like the, you know, like my stomach is just dropping. I'm like sweating, uh, you know, cold oh, no. sweat. So I go to my trailer, and I'm just, I'm completely, you know, that feeling when you're just out of out of your body. You've been like kicked out of your body, yeah. and you're just so. You're so uncomfortable that you're just like jittering somewhere three feet outside of your body. And I'm just thinking, what what am I going to do with this? What can I do? I mean, I, I got to. And then I was like, well, I got to go to work today. I got to go. I got to go act now. These people are paying me. They, they're making their movie. They've hired me to do good work on their movie, not to wallow in self-pity or <laughs> whatever it is I'm doing here. So I've got to go. I've got to go and do good work today. You know, I got to suck it up somehow, and go do good work. And then, like that, that day I got home and I was like, David, you're a good person. <laughs> <laughs> you really, you really showed up for the other guy. You know, you could have, you could have just, just given up. And then the next morning, that was a Friday, as I recall, because movies come out on weekends. And then on Saturday, I woke up, and I was so happy. And I, I was like, why are you so happy? And then um, I realized that I'd lived my entire life in fear of getting an F. And that I'd gotten an F from this really unfair, I think, reviewer. And uh, it didn't kill me. Like, I still woke up on mm-hmm. Saturday. So I was like, oh, an F doesn't kill you, after all. You get to move on. So I was like, oh.
0: You overcame the F.
2: I was like, thanks, thank you for the F. Like, if it had been a D, I wouldn't have had the same reaction. Because, like, well, a D, I mean, it's not an F. <laughs> By the way, there's no way that movie's an F. Like, like, an F is like an incompetent, like an Ed Wood movie is an F. Like, <laughs> so it's like, fuck whoever you are who reviewed that movie. That deserved a D. Don't give me an F. Wow.
1: <sighs> All right, here is the, um, here's the hard-hitting question. Um, well, I'm only going to preface...
2: I was like, well, here we have that.
1: <laughs> we're just going to read it word for word. No, yeah. We're, we're going to bring prepared. on the reviewer now who has uh, who has some questions of his own. No, yeah. Rob and I have had this <clears throat> argument discussion for years, for, for literally years now. So I'm not going to preface the question. I'm hoping that you'll just be able to pick from the two choices with an answer. Uh, Hank Moody or Fox Mulder?
2: Uh, well, what's the occasion? I don't know if there could have
0: been a better answer than that. To yeah, be My secret answer was Denise from Twin Peaks.
2: Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Denise is like so much potential. Like, yeah. like there's so much Mulder. There's hundreds of hours, and there's a lot of Moody. Mm-hmm. But there's only a little bit of Denise, and you, you just really want more.
0: That's that's part of the appeal, I think. That's definitely part of the appeal. I know.
2: I don't think we'll ever <laughs> get it. <laughs>
0: but honestly and i i'm not going to go deep into this but um in the twin peak twin peaks um return season yeah um i love the entire thing um one of the things that i was looking most forward to was an appearance from denise and the exchange between denise and gordon cole about um mm. how oh, i can't remember exactly what he says something about like fix your hearts or go and die man that just knocked me such dead such a
2: great line oh such a great line when i read that you know and i only got Two and a half pages, I got the scene. I, that's yep. all I got. And I was shooting Aquarius at the time. And so I went down on a Saturday night because I, I worked Monday through Friday. And, I mean, I would I would have worked... I would have worked 100 Saturdays in a row for David Lynch. But, you know, this is all I had. And um, so, you know, I was playing this, this L.A. cop, and now I'm going to go play... I'm riding down to downtown L.A., you know, with this script that they that they sent me maybe a couple of days before and when i read that line i was like that is such a great line My God. Those, clown, those, cl- those clowns those cl—those clowns something are those clown cars uh, i told them they better fix their hearts or die you know and i was like wow and then i was really happy that i was going to get to work with david you know because he didn't direct me when when we uh when, when i did the show way back when um and i don't i don't believe i really ever had met him and um so I not only got to be directed by him, that I got to act in the scene with him. So that was, you know, I was sad that it was, that was all. But uh, I mean, I'm, I totally understand. You know, Denise is a peripheral character to the whole story, but um, I was happy that that I got to meet and work with with David in that way. And um, I'm such an admirer of his. Uh, mm. yeah. I, you know, he's he's just a he's like a, a world unto himself. You know, and I, I think it's so rare
0: but yeah it's got to be cool especially not knowing that you hadn't really worked with him much on the original series like being able to just like that that moment you have with him to do a scene with him but then he goes and steals it with that great fucking line what a jerk
2: (laughs) that's okay that's okay i'm fine with that i mean he did give me like the little uh the little moment after he leaves i kind of fanned myself yeah of kept that in which, which was nice um but you know i mean the circumstance it's crazy you know that i i kind of woke up you know I, i'd worked all night friday i wake up saturday afternoon i head downtown la i go into makeup i, I come out looking like denise at like three thirty in the morning we start shooting you know i meet david lynch and we shoot and it was just like you know that was a cool day for me
0: sure absolutely So what I guess originally we were going to say what book can we look forward to next because this is a book podcast But like what from David Duchovny uh, are we going to be seeing on the horizon soon?
2: Well, I do have a book that I'm I haven't started um, writing yet, but I'm in the research mode and it's kind of a for me, it's 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 a it's more of a sprawling kind of epic uh, uh, You know American big landscape novel, so it's very different for me and I'm terrified to try it, and um, I got a lot of story to tell, and I I think it's an interesting story, and um, I'm waiting for some of the research to come in, and I think that that's going to lead me in directions that are even more interesting, and I, I think there's I I think it's going to be good. I I can only hope that it's going to be good, and I'm I'm eager to start, and um, I'm going to record some acoustic versions of my songs maybe maybe like a little six a six pack of uh, acoustic versions of songs from hell or high water and every third thought and then i've got a bunch of songs a bunch of new songs uh that i want to record in the spring for another album and then i've got a couple of tv shows uh that are um like at different stages of development but are starting to starting to come into focus that i'd be acting in not writing um and I want to direct uh, Bucky Dent. So there's a lot of nothing, but also a lot of a lot of something.
0: Awesome. Is there
1: anything on your radar you want to recommend for us or for listeners to check out?
2: Um, gee, uh, no, I'm <laughs> not really. I'm not. I read a lot, but but uh, the people that I would recommend don't need the recommendation. They're really <laughs> good. There's no. There's nobody. There's nobody. That I'm gonna discover for you, that I'm that I'm some hidden jewel that I know about. I mean, like I went to see Portugal the Man the other day, and I'm like, hey, that's a great band. But I'm sure everybody knows that already.
0: <laughs> well, uh, definitely want to thank you for taking some time to talk to us um, about. Uh, I mean, I think we probably just like got the tip of the iceberg, and I'm sure we could talk for hours and hours and hours. But um, thank you so much for joining us, and um, it was a real pleasure talking to you.
2: My pleasure. And I would love to, if I ever do finish the next book, or if you just want to, if you just want me to come on without a book and next time the TV or movie happens, we'll do that too, if you want.
1: And there you have it. That was David Duchovny, dude. That was a pretty, <laughs> that was a pretty excellent interview.
0: Yeah. He makes podcasting look easy, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, he did all the heavy <laughs>
1: lifting in that one. I'll be honest. So um, at any rate, thanks for listening. A huge thank you to David DeCovney for joining us and we'll be back again in uh, in about a week or so. Until then, I'm Olivia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading.